Hello and welcome to Uncommon Law, my podcast about true stories from my life experience of over 50 years as a lawyer and trial judge. This is a look at the law from the inside out, stuff they don't teach in law school. This is Judge Rudy Greco, retired justice of the New York State Supreme Court. So the next story, it's all about survival instinct. And Uncle Mersh was certainly a survivor, as this story will reveal. He adopted our family, or we adopted him, I don't know which, in the early 80s, when he had shared a room with my youngest brother in Booth Memorial Hospital, as it was known then, now New York Hospital, Queens. My brother had an ailment, which I forgot. Uh, He had a stomach problem, and he was in the hospital for a few days, and it was a semi-private room. And Marsh, whose real name was Morris, the the Americanized equivalent of Moisha, which was his given name, and in the slang uh, the slang of Brooklyn's neighborhood in Bra- Brownsville, where he grew up in the Italian and Jewish ghetto in Brownsville, he became Mersh, and we knew him, and he 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 anointed himself Uncle Mershy uh, in later years. Over the years, we became very very close. He started out as a survivor because when we met him in the hospital, he was recuperating. He was. Uh, given blood thinner on top of the blood thinner that he already had for his heart condition. And the result was disastrous. He was on the surgical table for 14 hours when the doctors were battling to save his life. And they did. And he survived. Now, Mershey was a little guy. He was about five foot four by five foot four. He had blonde wavy hair and big tortoiseshell glasses. He looked something like a little bit like a, like a husky owl of a guy, but he had a bounce in his step. He wore sharp suits and nice ties, expensive ties, and, and fine shirts with his monogram on it. It turns out that Mushy had been making a living as a Teamster Union organizer, among other things. And he did a few other things. Maybe he lent money a little here and a little there. And didn't make him a bad person. But his story was quite interesting, and over the years we came to know his story. It turns out that as a young man, he was convicted of a murder, a felony murder. Supposedly, he had held up the Pitkin Theater in Brownsville uh, on a uh, certain night, and in fleeing the scene, shot an Irish policeman who had intervened and killed him. Marsh was tried for the murder in front of a famous judge, a hanging judge in Brooklyn, Sam Judge Samuel Leibowitz, who himself had been a defense lawyer who beat over a hundred capital cases, most often by pleading his clients not guilty to manslaughter, which is involuntary, uh, homicide rather than pre-planned or premeditated homicide, which is murder. But Judge Leibowitz was a hanging judge. He'd give everybody the maximum penalty. And Moish was sent to Sing Sing, where he spent 37 months in the death house in the early 1940s. He said when they carted him away from Brooklyn after the trial, he remembers hearing the song on the radio, I'll never smile again. Now, I don't know if that was true, but it sounded pretty cinematic to me. It was, it was a heck of a line if that was true. 
and um, had no reason to disbelieve him either. It turns out, I said, how did you get convicted? He said, well, my brother-in-law was in trouble with the, with the law, and he was the witness against me. He claimed that I came in and I made a statement, and I said, I just shot that donkey cop, donkey being Brooklyn slang for an Irishman, and killed him. And when they asked him, when does this happen? What was the date? He says, oh, he gave a specific date. And they said, how do you know the date? He said, well, because I, I, when he came in, when Marsh came in, I was reading the newspaper, and, there, and I looked at the date right there. It was right there, and I had the newspaper in my hand, and there was the date as I was reading the newspaper. He said, that testimony was it, and I got convicted, and Leibowitz didn't hesitate to sentence me to death. And in that day and age, uh, the early 1940s at Sing Sing, the death house was very, very busy. They were frying people like potatoes up there. There were one or two a week, executions a week, no problem. Moshe's case was the talk of the uh, Sing Sing death house, and word reached another guy, Louis Bookhalter. Louis Bookhalter was known as Lepke. He was the preeminent Jewish gangster from Brooklyn, a millionaire, and revered among his peers uh, as, a, uh, as a big, big boss in, in, in Jewish underworld circles. And Lepke heard about Moshe, and the story was that Moshe got set up and was framed by his brother-in-law and the victim of an injustice. Moshe being a young, tough guy from the same neighborhood, the Brownsville neighborhood, where Lepke grew up, and being his Jewish landsman, uh, inspired uh, an act of generosity on Lepke's part, and he got Moish two lawyers to open up his case. They appealed his conviction to the United States Supreme Court, and his conviction was the first New York murder one indictment conviction ever overturned by the Supreme Court of the United States. There was a few others that followed, but they were rare. Marsh was sent back to New York and remanded for a new trial. The new trial took place. Now he had really good, competent lawyers, and they knew what the case was all about. And the brother-in-law testified as he did before in the first trial. Well, he came in and he told me, I shot that donkey cop and killed him. And it was such and such a date. And how did you know it was such and such a date? Well, he repeated because I was reading the newspaper, and there's the date at the top of the newspaper. And at that moment, Moish elbows his lawyer and says, now, hand him a newspaper that we have here. He hands a witness, the brother-in-law, a newspaper, and says, okay, read this newspaper. Well, the brother-in-law couldn't read. He was illiterate. The jury was out. For one half hour, Moish was acquitted. And he went on to fame and fortune as a union organizer for the Teamsters and an occasional loan shark and a couple of other things. His career was mostly involved with trucking in and around New York's airports with the cargo trucks. Later on in life, in the 1960s, 1970s, 19, late 60s or early 70s, Moish made more legal history because he was indicted in a truck hijacking, robbery, whatever it was, and there was a search involved. And his case 
became the landmark search and seizure case that, that laid out all the law as to proper searches and seizures by, by the police. And Marsh walked on that case. Then later on in life is when I came to know him. And he, he, he um, in the 80s, he was doing very, very well. He was very prosperous. And he would come and hang around my law office. He was familiar with law offices. He knew all the lawyers. Everybody knew him. You know, he spent his life hanging around with lawyers. And um, he sort of uh, took a shine uh, to coming around and, 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 and spending a few minutes or a half hour and a cup of coffee. And, and we had a lot of fun because he was a tremendous character. And he had survived all these different things. He had a very buoyant, um, a very buoyant personality. And, and of course, you know, uh, people think that people, Abe Lincoln, I think, said that uh, people think that it's a mark of character to be a, a survivor and to survive ordeals. Moish survived a lot of ordeals. Well, Abe Lincoln said, no, survival snake in people is very strong. Sometimes people are not the most wonderful people and they survive uh, ordeals. Because of the survival instinct, if you want to see what person, uh, what kind of character they have, give them some authority, and then you'll see how they use that power, and then you'll see what kind of people they are. But Moshe never came to that. He was just um, uh, a survivor in the truest sense of the word. Well, one of my friends on Queens Boulevard was written up all the time by by Jimmy Breslin, a Shelley the Bail Bondsman. It was a guy named Shelley Shevlo, God rest his soul. And Shelley was a dear friend of mine. And Shelley got a call from his friend, Jimmy Breslin, the Pulitzer Prize winning columnist. And Breslin said, Shelley, I need a favor. Maybe you can help me out. He said, my friend Bobby, the actor, and he was talking about Robert De Niro. He says, he's going to do a movie about Jewish gangsters. And he's looking around for somebody like a role model that he can follow around and, and, and pick up behavioral tips and and background, you know, on the subject. He does that. He immerses himself in the subject and and, uh, and in the role. Do you know anybody? Well, Shelley says, no, but Rudy has a friend. Rudy Greco is a lawyer, you know, Rudy. And he said, uh, one of his clients and friends is uh, is Moish. And Moish survived the death house in Sing Sing. Moish is just the guy you're looking for. And maybe I'll ask Rudy if he can talk to Moish. So Shelley did. He, I didn't. I would meet him on the street. It was his. His office was in the next block from mine, across from the criminal courts in Queens, Kew Gardens. And uh, he said, uh, "Breslin needs a favor. Uh, can you help him out? And would you ask Marshy?" I said, "Sure. Let me let me ask Marsh. So I, I put the proposition to Marsh. I said, "Marsh, how would you like to help Robert De Niro and coach him? He's going to play a Jewish gangster, and he needs some coaching." He said, De Niro? Yeah. I said, yeah, the guy who won the Academy Awards, you know, the guy, Wise Guys, all of these different movies. And Moish said, yeah, well, it could be, you know, let's get, let's, let's sit down and talk to him and find out what it's all about. So we set up a dinner meeting. Myself, Marsh, Shelley, Jimmy Breslin, and Robert De Niro, Bobby, known as Bobby among his friends. And my friend Gino, because it was my friend Gino's restaurant, the Racing Club, which was right across the street from Fox Television Studios on uh, East, uh, what was that, 67th Street in Manhattan. And we had a dinner. And we had a long dinner. It was very nice. And I assure you that the least interesting person at the dinner 
was Bobby De Niro. He just looked around in awe at the collection of characters and the stories and the commentary and the, and the dialogue that was going on all around. At one point, I remember him asking me, you know, are you a real lawyer? I said, yeah, I'm a real lawyer. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's good. And, uh, and I remember women in the restaurant uh, one woman nearly burned her breast in, in the chicken soup, bending over to get a look at De Niro. But that was how the night went. And wind up is, we made an arrangement. Moish would help and coach De Niro. So on the way home, back to Queens from Manhattan, Moish is exuberant. He says, you know what? This is going to be good. I'll, if this guy listens to me, I'll get him an Academy Award. I said, Moish was, was never short on confidence. He may be short, but he wasn't short on confidence. I said, Moish, he won a few. I know, but if he listens to me, this will be his greatest performance ever. He'll, he'll never top this. He said, because I know the subject cold. I said, that's good. It's the 1930s. You know, Moish's milieu when he grew up, and uh, he was an up-and-coming young wise guy. So... The arrangement is made. Now, Moish lived up near Francis Lewis High School in, in Queens on a quiet block of garden apartments. And he told his wife, Rosie, who had been with him right through the death time, right, they were childhood sweethearts. His, his, his lifelong wife and sweetheart was Rosie. And Rosie told the whole block, Robert De Niro's coming to our house tomorrow morning. And the whole block was behind Venetian blinds, peeking through the blinds, waiting for De Niro to arrive. And sure enough, he arrives. However, his arrival was less than auspicious because when he showed up, he just showed up and walked in the door. Rosie, from that moment on, had no use for him. Why? He showed up empty-handed. He had not a flower, not a piece of cake, not a bagel, not a bottle of wine, not a box of candy. Zilch, garnish, as Rosie said. Nothing. Nothing. Imagine the nerve showing up at somebody's house who's going to help you, and you don't even have something in your hand. Your stomach is exposed, you know? That was unforgivable. But anyway, he started hanging around with Marsh, and Marsh started reminiscing, and Marsh had the, the, the requisite accent and the figures of speech, etc., etc., and everything else. And Marsh is showing him old pictures and how he dressed and offers to lend him an old suit if he needs it and uh, maybe one of the old flashy ties that he wore when he was a young guy. He still had a couple of them hanging around the closet, etc., etc. And De Niro is following Moish and he's with him, showering Moish all over the place for three or four days. Now, things are getting a little close because Moish has to go out and make a living. Uh, God knows how he makes his living, and uh, De Niro's cramping his style a little bit. But Moish being ever a, a, an accommodating person and always a businessman at heart, comes up with an idea. And he says, you know, Bobby, I just thought about this. Uh-oh. What is it, Moish? He said, well, I'm coaching you, and you're going to be perfect. You're going to have the right dialect, the right accent, the right clothes, the right look, the right actions, the right emotions, everything about this. What about the rest of the cast? You're going to stick out like a sore thumb because they're not getting this coaching. Now, I, with Rudy, because thank God Marshy always remembers his friends, right? <laughs> Rudy, you know, was a teacher. And Rudy and I, together, can run a class for the entire cast and coach them and how they should act and, you know, in, in, in the appropriate way for that 
period of time, et cetera, et cetera. And they'll all be perfect, and you won't stand out like a, like a sore thumb. You know, you'll fit right in, and the movie will be tremendous, and it'll, it'll win all kinds of prizes. Who's the director here? He says the director is Sergio Leone. Well, Sergio Leone is the guy that did all the spaghetti westerns with Clint Eastwood. He's a very established, well-established big guy. And the movie was Once Upon a Time in America. So Moy says, well, you go tell this Leone guy, the director, Sergio, that Moishi and Rudy want to run a school for the entire cast and coach them in the proper dialects and, and, and everything else. Okay, okay, Moish. Oh, yeah, 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 Bobby, don't forget. You tell him tomorrow, okay? When you come back, I want to hear what he said. So the next day, De Niro shows up, and he said, well, Bob, first thing, Moish, he says, uh, Bobby, did you talk to Sergio Leone here, the director? He goes, yeah, yeah, Moish. Well, he said, well, Moish, Leone says, we're going to shoot most of the film at Cinecittà in Rome, Italy, the big studio where, where Fellini worked and everybody, all the Italian directors work. Italian Hollywood. And and it's not in the budget. No, no, no. He said, no, no. Bobby, did I say that Rudy and me can't go to Italy and run this class? No. We'll go to Italy. That's not a problem. Now you go back and tell this guy we're willing to go to Italy and that's not a big deal. We'll go. What could be bad? We'll go to Italy and teach the class. No problem. Tomorrow you let me know. Next morning, the Nero comes back and Moshi's all business now because he's getting, his patience is running out. And, and then the, the novelty is worn off, and nobody is looking through the, the blinds anymore for De Niro. He's an he's old hat on the block, on 175th place in, in Flushing. And, all right, Bobby, what is it? Uh, Moish, did you ask the director? Yeah. He said, what did he say? He, will, he said that it's, it's not in the budget. We, we don't have enough in the budget to do that. Oh, really? He says, okay, Bobby, I'll tell you what. Get lost. De Niro startled. He said, but, 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 but. He said, Bobby, you sound like a motorboat. Stop, but, but, but. He said, get lost. He said, but, Moish, uh, this is a favor. Jimmy Breslin, you know, we had them, the meeting and everything. He says, yeah, Bobby. He says, a favor? Okay, all right already, a favor. I'm not making a career out of this, he says. I did you a favor, now get lost, he said. If the guy wants to run a class, you come back. Then we talk business. Otherwise, get lost, because Moshe was a little bit annoyed. Well, anyway, things went on. Bobby De Niro did the film. The film was a flop because it was poorly edited in the final analysis, very, very long. And actually, the film was very, very good. When it was re-edited and remastered, and uh, Sergio Leone, I think, did the, the, the re-editing and everything else. It's, it's um, known in the film business as a, as, as a minor masterpiece. It's, it's quite a good film. It's very, very good. But that was too late. At the box office, the thing flopped. And Moishi for years said, you see, they didn't listen to me. If they listened to me, they would have had a big, big hit. Moishi went on, and he went on uh, to another incident in his life, a little income tax problem that he had with the government. He went away. They put him away for, I think it was about a year, and, and he had his, they had to send him to a federal prison's hospital in Springfield, Kentucky. Um, and Moish, as one judge said to me, you know, your client Moish, has a fantastic heart. As this judge represented him in, in, in his earlier life with the hijacking case. He said uh, his heart attacks him on command. Usually when there's a grand jury in session, he says, and just as miraculously, when the grand jury wraps it up, Moish's heart recuperates. He says, and he comes right back. He says, it's a phenomenal heart. It, 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 
goes into different modes on command. He said, but anyway, Moishe went to prison in Springfield where immediately he put his business uh, acumen into, into work and became the prison hospital administrator. And every night, every night, not every night, Friday night, Shabbos, he would go out with the prison chaplain, a rabbi, and the warden for a nice kosher meal in Lexington or Springfield, Kentucky. It was a Jewish restaurant somewhere in the neighborhood. And he would be out. And Moshe would run the hospital. He did the time. He got out for good behavior and everything else. And he went on and eventually went on in life and uh, uh, for a few more years and passed away. But he was um, mindful or reminding me of the old days when I was a kid. I used to read Reader's Digest and had the most unforgettable character I have ever met. Moishi could have qualified for that article. He was quite a guy, and he was a real survivor in every sense of the word. And his spirit was always undiminished to the day that he died. Thanks for listening. Come back next week for another episode of Uncommon Law, Lessons They Don't Teach in Law School. I'm Judge Rudy Greco. Court is adjourned.